Hello gamers, and thank you for tuning into another episode of The Cartridge Club. The Cartridge Club is a community of gamers, collectors, content creators, and gaming enthusiasts of all generations. The show that you're listening to is effectively a monthly book club, but for gamers. We pick a game, invite everyone in the club to play along, and select a couple of community members to come on the show to discuss the game. My name is Ryan, and I'm one of the hosts for the show. Without any further ado, let me introduce the panel for this month. From the blog Caught Me Gaming, we have Sarah. Hello. And from the YouTube channel Burning Books and the podcast Masters of Unlocking, we have Caleb. Hi, What Remains of Edith Finch is one of the best games ever. Thanks for being here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thanks for having me. And now I'm going to hand it over to my co-host, Musty Hobbit, and he'll let us know which game we're playing for this month. Musty? Thank you, Ryan, and welcome everyone to March's Cartridge Club Prime episode. You've already seen the title. You've already heard Caleb announce. <laughs> uh, you should know that March is quite appropriate for a walking simulator, and so we are playing What Remains of Edith Finch. And we're very excited to have our panel along with us today and our patrons here to take in the discussion live. Uh, while we won't necessarily be discussing every element of every story thread in this game, I should warn you now that we won't be holding back on what we would term spoilers. This game itself takes roughly two hours to complete. It's readily available on a number of platforms, including just recently added to Xbox Game Pass. So if you have any desire to play the game for yourself, this would be your last opportunity. I won't blame you if you need to pause us to give it a quick playthrough. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, uh, for those who are ready to find out all the secrets this crazy house has to share, let's hit the breakdown. The critically acclaimed What Remains of Edith Finch is a first-person narrative exploration game released in 2017 by developer Giant Sparrow Games. You take the role of Edith Finch, the last of the Finch family tree, who has returned to her family home in the forests of Washington State to learn more about her family and the perceived curse that has caused all but one member of each generation to die in unusual ways. Edith traverses the house, coming across closed-off bedrooms, serving as shrines to her deceased family members, and discovering the stories behind their demise. A total of 12 individual stories play out as vignettes with varying gameplay elements and styles. At the 2017 Game Awards, What Remains of Edith Finch took home the trophy for Best Narrative, even when put up against titles such as Horizon Zero Dawn, Wolfenstein 2, Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice, and Nier Automata. The 2018 BAFTA Games crowned Edith Finch as best game over Horizon, Hellblade, Super Mario Odyssey, and The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. So with that kind of reputation, let's hear our panel's overall impressions before we spend the rest of our time today walking through the Finch house. Well, if you want to know my overall impression of what remains of Edith Finch, I'd have to say that I loved it. I I loved it. Lately, I've been into walking simulators, and this was right up my alley, right from the the beginning. It had everything that I could ever possibly want, right down to when Edith approaches that yellow gate, no trespassing. I'm like, what? I think I'm, I'm going to be exploring something very special here. And I'm into the urban exploration thing. I I don't do it myself. I let other people do that. But this game actually lets you go on property and trespass and check things out. And just going on that path and cresting the hill and you see 
the Finch family house. And uh, then you approach the house itself and you notice it's, it's a home, but it's not a home. It's more than that. And it's got add-on after add-on. And, and then you crawl into the house and you're able to go in room by room. And, you know, looking at all of the objects in this house, it was like the people evaporated from, from the home. And from there, it's like your, your mind just goes down a rabbit hole and you wonder, what happened to these people and what's going on? And immediately you learn that uh, Milton is missing. And I thought for sure that it had to do with that, but it it's not. And, you know, so many questions, you know, and it just made you want to keep going and going and going and going through that house and finding out more and what Edith's history was. And I, I just adored it. I, I, I really did. I was vested into this game in a big way and I'd closely give it a five. Out of five. Yeah. Yeah. For, for, (laughs) you know, how it made me feel and all the elements, great music, the story story was quirky. I like that. It just, it really emoted feelings in me. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Excellent. Caleb, what, yeah. what about you? Where where are you at on uh, on this game, which you have already announced? <laughs> <laughs> it is it is number three on my list of favorite games of all time. Actually, it's it, I came into this game expecting a lot already. Um, I heard stories about it. I'm a huge walking simulator fan. Like Sarah, she's I know you've been into walking simulators lately. I'm a huge fan. I love an easy game. I love an experience driven game. I love narrative. A game really has to have narrative to hook me and. So, and I'd heard about the game and knew it was going to be great. And so I approached it, but I didn't realize that it was going to be a game that literally changes the way I look at literature. I mean, I have, I have an English literature degree. I've written books. I've like, I learned more and, and better appreciated literature by playing this game. I, I should say equal amount as, as my entire like college education, honestly, like there's so much in here that really helps. Uh, it, it does something that, that games can only do uniquely and that's give you an experience and allow you to interpret that experience and learn from it in your on your own on your own way and this puts you in a place where you can truly understand the power of narrative in a way that reading about it the way that even watching a movie about it couldn't necessarily do this game does that very uniquely and it does a lot of things uniquely which i'm sure i'll talk about later on but it, it and it blew my mind so it's fantastic fantastic game excellent so ryan this is your first time playing the game right correct what were your overall impressions? So I really liked it. I've been wanting to play a nice relaxing game for some time. I've been kind of playing some more challenging ones recently. So I nice I wanted a nice breather of a game and <laughs> this game kind of filled filled that that need. You know, I got some creepy vibes from it right off the start. Uh, I mean, the title is called What Remains of Edith Finch, so you already know that Edith Finch is dead. Now, I didn't know if I was playing as Edith Finch. Then you know, and you eventually find out that you are Edith Finch. But I, I was coming to. Are you the... though? Hold on. <laughs> well, I, I, oh. I have so I have some thoughts hmm. on that. We'll we'll get to, but sure. but not call that truth just yet. Okay, but uh, yeah, I loved how the story kind of you. It's like you're peeling away at the onion here, and you you know you don't know much at first, but the more you peel away, the more the story unfolds. The game doesn't overstay its welcome. I knocked it out within two hours on my stream when I streamed it on, on a Monday a couple weeks back. 
That that was great. Uh, I love the different tones. How every story seems to have a different tone to it. And you know, I heard a lot of good things going into this game that didn't affect my overall feelings. And I don't think it was overhyped. I I still really enjoyed this game. Great. We are going to be all on the same side of the equation on on this game. I I too liked this game a whole lot, and it's not often that games elicit an emotional response out of me. And this game did that on a few occasions, and we'll kind of get into. I'm sure I'm I'm sure I'm not unique in that, but it with that it it uh, cements kind of that feeling about how impactful a game can be for a game that's as compact as it is again only about two hours it took me about the same amount as ryan and that i felt like i i walked into this this world that was just lived in and uh and just rife for the investigating uh and being able to to seek it out and so yeah overall feelings though I really, really liked it. I don't know if I would put it in my top three, uh, like, you're wrong. like a Caleb, because I'm <laughs> because I am wrong. Uh, but uh, but it is it is certainly one of the best experiences that I've had over the past couple of years. This was my second oh, time. That's good. Actually, playing through it. So knowing some of the story beats that were coming, they're still they're still just as impactful on the second playthrough as they were on the first. And yeah, we'll dive into that here. And I can yeah. I can really quickly just say too, like one of the reasons, and I fully admit this, that I was so in, in, just impressed with this game is just my love of books and literature and things like that. And and I think that did allow me to definitely embrace it a little bit more. I you know when you first go into this house, you you get in through the doggy door and you kind of walk into the kitchen, and the kitchen is full of books, stacked of books, books all over. Now who has that many books in a kitchen? So that was already kind of mm-hmm. weird and jarring. Then you keep going through the house and you realize there's more books and there's more books. And then there's one door just to the right of the front door in the lobby that's a little bit unique. It's the first time you see a really unique looking doorway. It's all sealed up. You don't really know what's going on. And immediately when I saw that, I got this. A couple things came to mind. There's there's a book called House of Leaves, which is just a fantastic, crazy book. But I was speaking with Ian Dallas, the creative director of the game. And he confirmed, you know, House of Leaves was definitely a big inspiration. In fact, he had mm-hmm. for a while planned and the entire end of the game would be, be a ripoff of House of Leaves. And he just couldn't find a way to make it work. And so he ended up giving up on that. But he was really uh, inspired by that. And there's a lot of books by um, an author named Jorge Luis Borges, which is one of my favorites. He's Argentinian. He's, and he worked in libraries his whole life. And he's written about He's written a lot of stories and novels about the power of books and literature and things like that. And one of his collections is called Labyrinths, I think it is. And it's it, it literally is like a maze of books. And so you you see like that's what you're actually seeing here. So this was kind of a this was an opportunity for me to almost experience a, a connection to literature that, mm-hmm. that I've never been able to experience before. And so for me, that was super unique and that was uh, incredible. And, and that definitely sucked me in. So I will be praising this game a lot. Mm-hmm. All I ask is that you listeners uh, uh, understand that uh, I, I understand I'm probably a fanboy about it. So, I, you know, it, it, I'll go on and on and on about it. But it just it took me right from the start. Um, and I was one other thing I'll mention before we kind of move on to the other things is I, when I was talking to the creative director, he said, you know, the, the original impetus to the entire game was the idea of he wanted to create something 
that elicited the sense of the sublime, that the basically you're, you're in awe of nature. You're in awe, but scared kind of at the same time, this idea of sublime. And it was originally going to be a scuba diving simulator. And when you think about that, you're like, right. okay, I can, I can see it. If I'm scuba diving in the ocean, I'm seeing coral reef and stuff, and I'm seeing all this crazy, basically Abzu, but hyper-realistic. And, and you can kind of navigate everywhere you you want to and, and kind of you know really go crazy that's what it was originally going to be but then that led him down the path of all of these books and this fiction and stuff like that and so then he started incorporating a lot of that into the books i'm doing a lot of hand motions realizing that no one can see me on the camera <laughs> uh, all you can see is my giant face sorry about that but yeah so that was kind of the impetus and i think knowing that helps probably this conversation it, it shines a light on the conversation because you know what he was, they were going for. They were just wanting to basically paralyze you with beauty. And you see that really when you, when you, uh, Sarah, you were talking about seeing the house jutting above the horizon. Yes. Um, when you first see that, you're, you're immediately like, that's a little visceral. That's a little grotesque. That's a little weird. Yeah. It's like, exactly. that's not how houses are supposed to be. Like, that's not yeah. something's dangerous there and there's something weird and you want to know more about it. It's secluded from all of society. They talk about that. Yes. Um, a little bit in the book or a little bit in the game. I can say book instead of game. I'm probably going to do that a mm -hmm. lot. The idea that, that, and this will be something that I talk a lot about uh, moving forward after I pass the mic back over to, to Musty. Sorry, Musty. I'm just really freaking excited about this game. The, uh, the, the, the houses, it, they live in this very secluded environment and you get evidence of um, homeschooling. So it's this house that's home that really doesn't have a lot of outside contact. And I thought that was an incredibly impressive and smart move to not only show the isolation of the family and, and sort of, but it also goes to show like how then uh, impacted they would be by the stories that their great grandma Edie, great, great grandmother, I guess, Edie kind of passed along about how people in their family die and stuff because they don't, they don't have any outside reference necessarily. They're really, right. they're almost like a commune in the middle of nowhere. So they are able to be influenced by these stories and that'll probably get into my, a, my, my theories of the story, which I'm sure Musty, you alluded to, you had some theories too. So it'll be cool once we get to the point where we talk about kind of theories of what's really going on. But mm -hmm. um, anyway, I'll shut up because can, really can I say something? <laughs> yeah. So when it comes to books, uh, definitely I had a connection with the books myself. I am a book hoarder. <laughs> my family, my maternal family, my father, my mother, we, we collected books. We were voracious readers, still am. And our rec room ha had a, has a whole wall full of books. And uh, my, my father was an academic, and so he, he read lots. I, I really identified with those piles of books <laughs> in a big way. I really did, yeah. I, so. I really love the way that the, like the, those built-ins are done, mm -hmm. um, especially the ones that go over the archway of a, oh, of a door. Yeah. Like, like it was, it was, I think, I may be stealing this term from your interview, but there's like a beautifully grotesque, yeah, right? For sure. Miss to it. And so it's just like, it's just, you look at it, you're just like, this doesn't look right, but it's amazing that it looks the way that it does. Right. And, and yeah, you, that starts from the moment that you see the house, which really kind of functions as a character in and of itself. Right. And you approach the house and you can, be the traditionalist and go to go for the front door. You kind of have some uh, a decision to make in that moment, but things funnel you into the into the home, and and you're you're met with you know into the kitchen and the dining room. Which strangely, mm -hmm. I don't know how long these people have been gone. Seven uh, years, I think she said. Seven yeah. years. Yeah, 
Chinese food should not look like that after seven years. <laughs> yeah. Chinese food, mind you, from the only place that would deliver food to them yeah. because of their how remote that they were. Nice little little yeah. elements there to kind of you know continue that that narrative right. of it being uh, as secluded as it is. But doesn't it make you feel like, wow, uh, you know, like these people evaporated <laughs> from the table? Their place setting is still sitting there. And it's not until the very end when you, re well, I mean, we're already talking about spoilers, but at the end you kind of realize like the mother, Dawn, I think was her name, uh, yep. finally got fed up with great grandma Edie and was like, we have to leave now. And like, so they kind of left her and left everyone. Like, so you, it really was sort of this build up, this build up, this build up. And what I think that if I remember correctly, the catalyst was Edith finally got into that weird book archway library room that was sealed off. She got in there and that was like the last straw. The mother was like, you can't keep infecting, essentially affecting my child, my children with these stories that ultimately are their own doom. We got well, it. Here, you know? It was actually Milton that went missing. Milton. And then uh, Don sitting at the table, they're eating their Chinese food says, that's it. We're leaving. Mm. And Edie was like, well, you can't escape. You can't keep running away just because this keeps happening. And that's when Edith was excused from the table and went into the library. Mm, yeah, that's right. That's right. And read and, the book. And it's interesting that that very moment, I think, was one of the one of the final, I think, really like eye opening moments, because throughout the entire game, there's this tension between great grandma Edie and her stories whether or not there's an actual curse because that that's what that they they contextualize it in the game as a curse like that's sort of the mechanic or not the mechanic that's the MacGuffin or whatever the word is to like basically give credence to all of these deaths there's a curse but toward the end you, you, when you realize Edith is writing in a journal and she realizes as she's writing like holy crap I probably shouldn't be writing this down because now that I've written it down I've committed it and it's now part of the narrative of our story of our home of of us therefore now i've subjected myself to this curse essentially and so she kind of realizes that at, at the end and sorry i think i'm going way over no this is great i love it i mean um, but yeah but one thing i was gonna say about your comment musty is you talk about how intricate those those archways and those cubbies are and i i believe that's you got to think like if those books were removed you could almost realistically see the house crumble it's almost as though the house oh, is yeah. structurally dependent upon those books, meaning the entire yeah. house is dependent upon the narrative, the story of those books. Like it, and I love the fact that they it almost looks as though they literally built the walls out of books. That's insane. So anyway, go That's ahead. Deep. That's deep. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So uh, to kind of bring us back just, just a little bit, because I, I, I want to kind of set things up. There, you know, you as Edith are returning, right? You're returning to your your childhood home, and and all you have is this key and her notebook, and she's there to try and figure out what is actually going on here, um, and to kind of bring some truth to these myths that have been happening, that have been perpetuated through newspaper articles and things like that about this family, and you kind of discover this as as you go through, and so Edith manages. Uh, with her key to end up locating in, I think it was Walter's room, the yeah. first of what are many hidden entrances and paths throughout this house, which is a crazy concept to me that you could live in this house for <laughs> what I assume would be at least 10 years of her life and have her not 
find these mm-hmm. uh, or not stumble upon these in, in any way. Um, well, she did so, make a point. She did make a comment about how she thought all how again, keep in mind this house of this family secluded. They're homeschooled. They don't know how other houses work. And she said it in there at some point, she goes, I thought all houses had sealed off doorways and sealed off things that people couldn't enter. And so I think when you first go into Walter's room, I would imagine that at one point that door probably was sealed. And like, she just never went in there because that's how houses work. You're not supposed to go in these rooms and they're sealed off for whatever reason. So I, I, I was okay with it, but I see kind of your point. Like, I don't really, think it was not- ever sealed. Because oh, Edith, Edith said that she spent a lot of time in there playing. Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Okay. Never mind then. But she never had the key and she never thought to then look at that one spot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. She, she I mean, initially, she, I mean, she had this key and she, she tried, well, I had her try the front door and she's like, oh, that would be too easy. And of course it didn't work. But so she trying to figure out, you know, later. So yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so, I mean, like it, as a child, if I saw a padlock, I was conditioned to not mess with it, and so that's probably that's probably what's going on there. I'll 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 let it slide. I'm not I'm not uh, not going to jump on on <laughs> minute minutia like that. But once she discovers that she has the this mechanism to then discover all of these things, and so mm-hmm. as she's going through these rooms of her deceased relatives, these rooms have been effectively sealed off for years and years a very long time in some cases uh, with some of her like prior generation family members. But, you know, we sort of, we figure out by looking at these sort of shrines, how these individuals spent their last moments. And so one of the questions I was going to ask the panel here is being as these are playing through the head of that individual, what's it like to be in the head of somebody that, you know, Maybe not in the first the the first story, but as you start to go, you know the moment that you're in this person's head. You're like, yeah, this is this is going to be it for this person, and I'm mm. living that. Sarah, what what? I, I guess what's that like? A bit morbid. <laughs> <laughs> I feel a bit morbid. Um, how do you feel? I don't know. I just i i i didn't like go into their skin or anything. I just i just took it as it came. I don't know, Caleb. What do you do? I think it hit me with Gregory's story, um, which we'll talk, I'm sure, mm. we'll get to that. Because that was the first time for listeners that, that Gregory died at one year old, less than a year old. Right. Um, definitely the youngest death. And you do play through the deaths of all these characters. I think you might have said that, Musty, but I, I just want to re-verify. Um, but that was the first time that I was like, it would finally hit me that you, you, you play video games and you're conditioned that characters die. Like that's part, that's a, a, a very common lose condition. Characters die. In this case, it's not a lose condition. It's a progress condition. So <laughs> I was like, uh, when I played Gregory's story, which was the baby, I was like, there's no way they're going to kill this baby. Like someone uh, else is going to die, but I'm just going to see it through the baby's perspective. Or, you know, I, better I, or worse. I, it probably <laughs> neither. <laughs> but then it, it like, but when I started playing it, I'm like, oh, God, no, they're not going to they're not going to do this. They're not going to make me play this baby and and get killed as this baby. And what's crazy is Im- immediately when I started playing that level, immediately when I started playing it, I almost forgot that I that the baby was going to die because it was such a fun, like joyful kind of environment. You're you're in a bathtub and you're like playing with all the toys and things are going and you're you're like completely forget about it. You're like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it was it's not until you like 
turn on the faucet basically, which raises the bathtub water and causes the baby to drown. Yeah. Uh, it's not until that, that I'm like, Oh God. Yeah, that's right. I have to kill this bait. I have, I have to do, do this. This is mm -hmm. crazy. But yeah, uh, it, it's tough to live through those things, but you know, that's the only way that the story works. Like you mm -hmm. couldn't see it from a third person perspective. You, have to be a part of that because that's the old, that's the one angle of the story that you're not given is the actual person who lived through it. But what's interesting is as you live through it, you're still being inundated with the story, fantastical elements or those fantastical logic that great grandma Edie would apply to the stories. So, you know, if, for example, Molly. Oh gosh, if you want to talk Molly, okay. I have to say that when Molly was on the scene and she like they were killing her off, I thought I thought this this game was going to be about child abuse mm. because they sent Molly to bed mm -hmm. without dinner. Mm -hmm. we, I didn't know what that was about. If Molly misbehaved, nothing was ever told from the beginning of that. She went to bed. She was starving and she was eating holly berries and she died. Mm -hmm. you, you know. I thought this is this game's going to be about a family that abuses their children and that's mm. how people die. And I have to say if you're if you're wanting to know I, I was a bit upset with that, with that that whole thing. I don't like to and Gregory when he died like I don't like yeah children yeah. dying really like the young well, ones. Are, what what a really. stance to take, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so but thankfully it wasn't about child abuse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that, but that but I think Molly's story, and it's important that's the first story because that allows you to accept the death as either legitimately a curse, legitimately something fantastical, or right. it's the first window in which you can sort of see how great grandma Edie would construe the death and give it a story give it a legend to make it a, a little legend. bit more digestible, right? Because exactly. at the end of it, you're like, how did she die? Well, you said the holly berries, and that's what I think too. She ate some holly berries and they poisoned her and she died. And a full tube of toothpaste. And a full tube of toothpaste, that. which probably which, didn't Which help. at the time, I don't know that toothpaste was necessarily something that should be oh, consumed right. in that, that type of quantity. Like 40s or 50s, right? Like Lots so of fluoride in that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so basically at the end of it, like her, her, story is that she was eaten by this tentacle monster right like but the reality is that she died by eating these poison berries or toothpaste and so that's the first glimpse when you get like okay there's a real way she died but then there's this legend this infused story about how they died and i feel like that's a perfect representation of every story because every single one of the stories is there's a real way the person died but then there's also the story way and that's what leads to this idea of a curse because i think if you take a far enough step back I don't know that all of those people who died in the house is really that crazy. I mean, you got to imagine it started from like the twenties, I think to like the two thousands and how many people died eight, nine, 10. That's not that many people really. It's just happens to be that it's, it's in a, in a pretty narrow like tree. And so, and, and all these stories make it seem very fantastical, but it, I don't think it's that fantastic. I'm not, I'm not a death expert, but I don't think it's that crazy, but yeah, anyway, well, they're they're also in their bubble. They're not exposed right. to normal death, you know, natural causes, things like that. There's a lot of accidents. Like a lot of <laughs> things go really wrong here. Um, look at the way the house is built. Of course, there's going to be accidents. Like, yeah, these people Absolutely. aren't safe. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, there's a there, there's a fair amount of Murphy's law that kind of goes into this. That mm -hmm. uh, you know, just they're putting themselves in these situations. There's irony too. There is irony. Very true. Very true. So. 
anyways, if if we go into uh, Walter, especially, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There. I, I do want to save Walter until we talk about Barbara, but let's right. let's kind of dig into some of our favorites. I I, I actually do want to riff on on Molly a little bit more, being as she's the first story, and she's mm -hmm. you know we kind of hit on the fact that she's of the stories. It's one of the more out, just kind of wild mm -hmm. ones because you're you know she. I believe she's hallucinating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She believes she has turned into a cat and then turned into a, an, uh, I think it's a, a, a falcon or an, or an owl. No. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. The owl first. Yeah. And then she turns into a shark flopping around in the forest. <laughs> and which, which is one of the, I don't know, to me, that's one of the more hilarious moments <laughs> there. Cause like almost inevitably you get hung up on a tree. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if oh, yeah. like, and and there's a fair amount of this throughout where where it's almost like uh you're getting you're getting funneled into mm -hmm. into something happening that is intentional but you still feel like you have the illusion of choice but yeah like the, there's one tree that you almost like <laughs> I, I i watched when ryan did it i watched when i did it and we both hit the same tree and had to like flop ourselves to like get moving again and then roll across the street and then land in the in the ocean then I don't know. I, I found that one particularly fun. It, it gets kind of weird when you turn into like a tentacle monster. <laughs> I don't know what to think about that. And then coming out of the toilet, like I'm just going to, I'm just going to yeah. say real, real, real quick here that I didn't realize what was going on. Cause this was very early on in the story. It's her, is she the first book you read with her? Yeah. I didn't. Re so I didn't realize exactly what was going on. Like the whole, her dying of the berries and toothpaste went over my head uh, completely until you start seeing more and more stories reveal as the game goes on. Then I'm like, oh, she's because she kept saying she's having a hard time breathing, I believe, too, right? She said her stomachs were growling. She was oh. like, all of my stomachs are growling and they're all mm -hmm. hungry. So I think she was probably feeling like pain in her stomach, pain in her gut, probably. But I was almost wondering if those berries weren't actually holly berries, but they were like plastic. That's what I thought. I thought they were she plastic might have been ones choking got, on them. Oh, that's possible. Although that would that would exclude the hallucination, though, because like you kind of need the poison to hallucinate, right? Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, what kind of toothpaste they have in the forties? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's very true. But you know, like like I said, that stuff didn't catch on right away because like you know, we're storytelling. You're changing from one animal to another. We're that's the just kind of was. I wasn't thinking about it because I'm a cat now. You know, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and then <laughs> it's just one of those one of those things that. Uh, and she was young, so it's like you kind yeah, of yeah, thought as imagination. like, yeah, exactly, Fanta fantasy and imagination stuff, yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and then eventually, I don't mean to bring this back to Gregory, but by that point in time, I'm already on the board the kill train here. I'm like, oh, how am I going to kill this next person? <laughs> and then I'm like, the the sequence opens up and you're a baby in the bathtub. I was like, oh, yeah. well, let's get this over with because this is going to be, you know, horrible. That's so. the magic of it, though. I mean, like, Every element of this game is so perfectly orchestrated. Like Molly's story would only work the as the first story. If it was the sixth story, you'd you'd immediately know right away. Oh, she's gonna eat holly berries and die. Like you you would just know. And if it was as fantastical as it is late in the game, you wouldn't buy it because by that point, late in the game, you're playing Lewis's story, which I know must you want to talk a little bit about Lewis's story. So you, you kind of you kind of have to, like the way that the stories are paced. It makes me wonder. I wish I would have asked um, Ian Dallas, like, did they just have these ideas for story beats? And then they decided which 
order they would work in or did they did they instead like how would they actually came across that because that would be interesting but i didn't so time wasted <laughs> well and there's and there's some of the stories that there's a fair amount of foreshadowing that happens one of the examples being the the giant slide out front mm-hmm. uh, yeah. the dragon shaped slide you see it and and in the moment you're just like oh, okay that's that's strange and then later on you come to find that Edie was telling people that her husband was crushed by a dragon or eaten by kill eaten by or killed it was, by. I actually wrote that down because that that was the moment when the entire game changed for me because that's when I realized Edie is all about imbuing legend and imbuing story to the family and giving credence to the deaths rather than letting people die in vain. It's letting people die with some sort of heroic legendary status. And the actual uh, quote was, um, from Edith's perspective, she says, when Edie told people Sven was killed by a dragon, she could also have said he was building a dragon-shaped slide that collapsed. She could have, but she didn't. And that's so, so, so important. Like, she consciously did not say that because she wants this legend. She wants the story around why people die. Uh, it, was a big, it was a big deal. It might be a cultural thing, too, because the family originally originated from Norway. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, like, Norse... Viking type of maybe ideology there, like mm-hmm. from, and maybe that's what they're doing is uh, Edie was trying to infuse a little bit of that kind of history into her, uh, into her family, make them legends. Yeah. I wonder if there is a clash between myth and, and between uh, myth and um, what's the word? Ex- uh, not explicit, um, literal. Like if there's a clash between the, the myth of the old world, quote unquote, and the literalness of, you know, America. Um, I wonder if, yeah, there's probably a tension there. And that's probably why Dawn ultimately took her kids and was like, I got to get the hell out of here. You know, Milton's gone. And you're trying to say, rather than try to help find Milton, great grandma Edie, you're saying, oh, no, it's, uh, you know, he fell into a painting. Like, uh, come on, like, can you help? Uh, maybe instead of telling right. people he fell into a painting, that'd be kind of helpful. Uh, so that's probably like the last straw. But yeah, I like that idea. And, and and it's interesting with the family tree the way it is, it, and with Edie effectively outliving all of her, <laughs> all of her, like I maybe that's her coping mechanism is that she can't, she's incapable of dealing with the reality of it, and it has to be, yeah, it's it has to be this kind of myth uh, to it. Hmm. Possibly, yeah, I like that. Yeah, because that is true. Yeah, she did live outlive everyone. Yeah, huh? Interesting. We think she might still be alive. That's true. Well, then she still outlived everyone, right? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, actually, that would be true. Um, Except her tombstone did have a date on it, did it not? Oh, I'd hope so, because a tombstone without an end date is Edie. kind of a creepy, weird tombstone. Yeah. <laughs> well, but however, this weird family didn't build the house That's until true. the cemetery was in right. place. So uh, I, I don't know. There's, and I love, I love that Edith was conscious of that. She, I think her quote was, I didn't write this one down, but I think it was like, what kind of family builds a cemetery before they've completed the house? I'm like, yeah, that's true. And then they, there's the pet. And she was like, there's a pet cemetery. And she's like, that's creepier than the people. And it's really cool. Cause you can actually go through and like read the tombstones and actually like derpy and burpy. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the goldfish name was Christopher, which uh, that was Molly's goldfish. And then Edith's kid, I think is named Christopher. So it's like, there's this almost like, it's not just a story. Let's pass down generation to generation. It's also names. Edith is named after Edie. I mean, there's names that are passed down. They're trying to hold on to this legend, this myth, this lineology that, um, you know, it's just peppered throughout. I love it. 
So let's let's talk a little more about we we've each kind of picked a couple of our favorites as far as these these stories, but I think I think in general you kind of have a feel for what what we have going into this. We'll kind of wrap things. We'll we'll come back to like the end kind of realizations after this, but. I don't. I don't want to take. I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about some some of our favorites. And so we've we've kind of alluded to a few of them, but um, let's just kind of go down the list that we have here because I think they're kind of in order of how they're addressed. Um, but Caleb, you you mentioned Calvin's story as being one that that you were particularly fond of, or maybe just it was one of your favorites for reasons that I would like to talk about now. <laughs> yeah, it's one that uh, a lot of people I've talked to about this game don't really find that impactful, to be honest. But to me, it made sense from a lot of different perspectives. So Calvin is the twin brother of Sam, and they share a room. Calvin is really into space. He's into being an astronaut, and he wants to fly to space, and that's sort of his thing. I would say he's probably like 10-ish or so years old, maybe a little less, maybe seven or so. And so Calvin's story is you're immediately put into the body of Calvin, as you are with all of the stories. And you're sitting in a swing. And the reason why this story was so impactful is because, one, it really showed the the developers' uh, strength with game mechanics. Like So up until this point, there's not a whole lot of tutorializing. There's not a whole lot of direction. Even from the opening scene, you have to sort of intuit how to turn pages in a journal. Like It doesn't say press R and the left analog stick to turn a page. Like you kind of have to just know like, okay, I got to actually move an analog stick to turn a page and that kind of stuff. So you're already primed to do a lot of that stuff manually, but this was the first time that it really like, I felt anyway, put you in the body of the person in a way that video games can only do. And so you're immediately put into a swing and the narration, Edith's narration is, you know, something about like Calvin always wanted to go to space. He always wanted to fly. And he decided that today was going to be the day that he truly did it, that he went to space, that he flew and you're in a swing set. And so you are from a kid brain. You remember, you got to put yourself in the position of, of a kid, of a seven-year-old or whatever. How, what's the most logical way I could think to get to space as a six-year-old sitting in a swing? Well, I'm going to swing as high as I possibly can and go over the, you know, over the bar. That's the legend that all kids have. So even in this particular situation, there's legend upon legend. It's like a meta legend where there's the legend of the family, but then also this kid is adhering to these like childhood legends. And so he's like, I got to go over the bar. And so you're sitting in there. It's not giving you any prompts. It's not telling you what to do. And then so you start moving the joysticks as you would, the analog sticks as you would. And you realize that as you move the right analog stick, the right foot kind of kicks a little bit. You move the left analog stick, the left foot kind of kicks a little bit. So you're trying to move them all wobbly. You're trying to go fast and it's like nothing's happening. And then you realize, oh, I've got a pump. I've got a pump like a child on a swing. And so you've got to sort of move the sticks back and forth and to sort of get that momentum going. And you once you realize that, you're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm in this kid's head. I'm like figuring this out. And now you're like this willing participant where you're having to continue to pump your legs to... At, by this point in the game, you realize you're killing the kid, like the kid's going to die. So you're as a player having to pump your legs because you want to see the next beat in the story. But you know that by doing so, you're eventually going to kill yourself somehow. You don't really know how yet. But the implication is that you fell out of the swing and probably you know broke your neck or hurt yourself in some way. But it also did a really cool job of not solidifying exactly. I think this was probably the first time for me in the in the game where I realized that they were not the the developers and the and the designers were not willing to 
fully show they they're very against showing you the visceral deaths like that's not the point of the game they don't want to show how you died they don't want to show blood they don't want to show guts that's not what they're about so at the point of death in all of these stories something fantastical happens and you're just sort of left to believe what probably happened so in this particular case you swing over the bar a few times and you're like this is already fantastical like kids you can't actually swing over the bar it's like it's physically impossible that's that's not how gravity works and so but, but who is the kid didn't try this though oh, I, yeah. I can i can for <laughs> one say like, i tried to go exactly. as high as i possibly could on every kid tried yeah there's, but there's no physical way that you could actually go over unless you had help from like rocket boosters or something like you mm -hmm. just can't do it and so but he did he went over it as soon as he went over the bar i'm like okay now i'm in the fantasy zone like all of the rest of the stuff that happens in this is not real because that can't happen and so then, of course, you swing over a few more times and then you're like launched off into space and you're kind of floating in space. Um, but, you know, actually, you probably fell. And you're probably dead. <laughs> and you're well, not. And, actually, you and, and that's what happens when you build a swing set on the edge of a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's true. Like you literally like you. Yeah, that's very true. And what's interesting is if you later on in the game or maybe even earlier, honestly, I can't remember. There is a point when you are able to explore the backyard, quote unquote, of the house. Um, the entire house is surrounded by backyard, essentially, but you're able to explore it and you can actually see the 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 swing all knotted up and tied up in the tree. Um, mm -hmm. And you can see the result of a lot of things. There's Gus's story. He's the guy who flew the kite and and tore up everything. You can see the result of that event in before you actually even experience Gus's story, which is really, really, really cool if you're paying attention to it. So it's one of those games that it does. I mean, for as much as you think a replay wouldn't make sense, a replay totally makes sense you can see a lot of interesting cool things but that's why i love i loved calvin's story because of that because it really showed me a little bit about game mechanics i think there's a lot in this game that really thrives on learning about or and that show showcases its its ability to understand game mechanics another i'll toss back to the to the interview with in dallas but he talked about when you first enter the doggy door you're not able to exit the doggy door so this is toward the very beginning of the game you get into the house through the doggy door you're not able to leave the doggy door. And he said that was, there was like a heated debate in, in, in the, the, the offices about like, should you be able to leave the doggy door or not? And ultimately you can't because of streaming issues. Like you can't because you have to load a certain amount of data because there, there's no load zones in the game. So you have to load a certain amount of data. And that was a very logical point where once you enter the doggy door, you could load a bunch of data and get rid of, they call it, it's called the garbage collector. Basically you delete a bunch of stuff you don't need anymore. And so they were able to delete all of the outside of the house stuff. And they didn't want to have to reload that when you try to go back. And so you can't do that. But this was another, um, this was a, this was just sort of another situation where they just like kind of really understood how game mechanics work. And um, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of other examples, but I will pass it along. <laughs> yeah, there was, there was a point uh, after your interview with Ian, where you and, and Scott talked about the game for a bit and you, you brought up Mario one mm -hmm. super mario brothers as an example of of exactly that effect right you couldn't go back to the left because it had already been dumped yep. effectively but yeah that was that that was a, a very interesting to hear it from the dev side of things because it, usually it just feels like a limitation to us right uh, one, one thing before we get off kelvin i just want to say i do like the the one line that they mentioned that his brother didn't like, was it vegetables that he rather die before having another one of the vegetables again in his life. And he did. Like <laughs> that's like, true. Yeah, you're yeah. right. That's one, that's yeah. one little line. Maybe it's a throwaway line, but as a picky eater, I liked it a lot, <laughs> you know? Well, and, and there was also, I mean, it's also like sort of a, a case study 
I'm sort of an armchair game developer. I've never developed any games that would be at all considered good, but I have fun doing it. And it's a case study in like how to compact cram a bunch of things into one thing. So you'll also notice not only is the writing great, like you pointed to just now, um, Ryan, but also you notice he has a cast. He has a cast. Calvin does. So, you know, he's a risk taker. Mm -hmm. You already know he's a risk taker. He's probably already tried to do this. Once. He's probably tried to do this once. Exactly. And so, and what's funny is you mentioned the, the I'd rather eat another vegetable that happened right when I don't know if it was Edie or who it was, but yelled basically come in for dinner. It's time for dinner. Yeah. And so that's when he dies. Like mm -hmm. he literally did die seconds before he would have eaten mm -hmm. Brussels sprouts so or whatever it was I might have sure. said yeah but I don't know I, I loved it um they they the one other thing I'll mention real quick about about it is uh, <laughs> so I try to think that I know what's going on in the game like when I was talking to, to Ian Dallas he I was asking, I was fanboying out. I'll be honest with you. If you listen to the interview, it's cringeworthy because I was such a fanboy about it. But I asked him, I said, you know, there's a lot of transitions between scenes that are very Halo-like. It's basically a circle. You're going into a light and that's sort of the transition. When you come up from the toilet uh, from the, uh, the the monster, the tentacle monster in Molly's story, it's kind of a halo. You're going to the light. Uh, Walter, when you exit the the downstairs area, I think that's Walter, right? Uh, with the guy who uh, was down in the basement for like 30 years or whatever he exits and he comes into the sunlight and there's a train that hits him like all of these things i'm like well you're transitioning from like a earth state to a heaven state right and he was essentially like no we just really just know how to do like halo effects bloom like, bloom effect yeah <laughs> yeah the blue effect he's like no sorry to burst your bubble but that's just what we do and there's a couple others which maybe as we get toward the end of the game i'll talk about but <laughs> just i love the fact that like they're using their limitations as a as a as a feature it's not a feature it's not a bug it's a feature kind of thing you know so very good now you you brought up gus's story and sarah this was one that that you had indicated was one of your favorites you want to kind of talk about yeah. um gus yeah so in the story we have gregory who was the baby that drowned and basically was the impetus to it put a wedge between gregory's father and mother sam and Kay. And they eventually separated and divorced. And the children that were left were uh, Dawn and Gus. And Sam found another beloved and uh, decided to get married. And the kids just didn't, didn't like her. <laughs> and basically, Gus's scene uh, has them at the beach, at the shoreline by the house um and sam and his new wife or new to be wife get married on the beach under a tent and gus is being a ruffian <laughs> a 13 year old ruffian who just doesn't want any part of this and he has an obsession with kites he likes to fly kites and there that's a bit tongue tongue in cheek too because you know he doesn't want to be part of it Sort of like somebody saying, uh, go fly a kite and <laughs> you just watch me. I'm going to fly that kite. Oh, I like you know that. I, yeah. You I know what I mean? That. I like that. And uh, <laughs> so he decides he's going to step away uh, from the ceremony and just do his own thing. Fly kite. And uh, it was nice when they started the ceremony, but slowly but surely a storm starts rolling in. And while that's happening, 
a poem written by Dawn uh, that explains Gus's demise is displayed on screen. And pretty much what you see is from the perspective of Gus holding on to the kite reins. And you are made to uh, navigate this kite through the text that is shown on screen. And it's so cool that once the storm starts rolling in, objects that were on the beach start flying up into the air and whipping around and catching on the kite, including chairs and other objects. Uh, They fly all over the place. And there's one point in the poem where the uh, wind whips up and uh, Sam says, turn up the music, Make, make the music louder or something to that effect. Basically saying, everyone get in the tent and let's ignore what's happening outside. (laughs) And uh, let's have a good time. And here, Gus is having his own party outside. Um, And pretty much this torrential storm comes in, whips all sorts of things around, lifts the tent up off of of its uh, stakes, starts flying around the, uh, the air, And the next thing you know, you can only assume that the tent hits him or he gets hit by that and some objects. We don't, we're not exactly sure. Um, And he basically gets killed by a flying object. (laughs) I'm assuming it's the tent, but I can't be sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they close that with the tent coming at him fairly strong now uh, there is one point in that i remember where where you have to almost pull text off of the totem pole Mm -hmm. yes right that's right next to him earlier i think you walk through an area and that totem pole is on the ground Mm -hmm. yeah Um, and some some people uh surmise that you know the totem pole fell on him but uh i don't know i'm just taking it at face value it looked to me like it could have been anything because a big storm had blown through and uh, objects were flying everywhere. And he obviously was hit by something, Mm -hmm. but I identified with that, that, that boy. I really did in my own personal life. I mean, my mom, (laughs) my mom was widowed and she started dating a man about four years later. And of course we were two, two little kids we didn't like this big, tall man coming mm. into our house and taking over and watching our TV and, you know, all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And we really put my mom and uh, my now stepfather through the gears. We really did. We didn't like we didn't like this guy invading our space. And of course, they got married when we were adults. So it was all cool and everything. But, you know, when when I was eight years old, <laughs> I didn't mm. like I didn't like this stranger coming into my house, you know, and uh, I, I sort of identify with, with Gus and uh, the whole, um, you know, you could hear Sam in the background. Hey, you, you come over here and take a picture with the family right now. Mm-hmm. I was, I was kind of a sullen teenager too. And I was like, Oh, pictures, come on. You know, like, I never gave my family the middle finger <laughs> <laughs> while flying a kite, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, like I, uh, I identified with that feeling of despondence and like, who do you think you are? And, you know, I, you know, like, I don't want to be a part of this and, uh, you know, showing my protest. 
you know, like, like I, 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 I can identify with feeling those feelings. And of course, when you're a teenager, you have all sorts of hormones happening and <laughs> you, you, you're emotional. You don't know what, how, how you're feeling from one minute to the next. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I like that, that part of the, the game. I definitely did. Excellent. And what's, what's interesting too, is um, if you think about the position he was put in, which caused him to die, it was his aversion to being part of the family that made him die. And so mm -hmm. it's almost like if that truly is a tale from Edie's perspective, yep, it makes sense because she's trying to create these, these myths, these legends to keep the family together. And she's basically saying, Hey, because Gus wasn't a quote unquote team player, uh, he's dead now. So <laughs> you might want to, you know, be part of that. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting too, that, mm -hmm. that he, he was the only one that feels He's so isolated, like other people die trying almost to be part of the family. You know, Walter is a good example, but it's it's yeah, it's just kind of interesting that he died because he was not willing to be part of the family. Yeah, he's uh, in a way asserting his independence. Mm -hmm. And that's you know, what, as, what's his downfall. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyways, no, that, that that's great. Ryan, I, I want to throw to you because the next story we want to talk about is uh, one that you indicated was your favorite, along with a uh, friend of the show, Dean from Round 2 Gaming, mentioned Barbara's story as being one that's really stood out. So why don't you tell us a little bit about our child star, Barbara, and, uh, and her eventual demise. Yeah, so Barbara, she you know, is a child actress, or she was a child actress, she was famous for her scream and appearing in horror films. I can't remember the era where it was that she uh, was famous around, but kind of like maybe the introduction of the monster flicks, like your Wolfman and whatnot. And as she got older, she lost her scream. So she kind of drifted away. She became her one trick pony actor, you know, child actor. And she got older, you know, the acting gigs went away. Eventually, then this you find out by um I believe checking her her gravestone, you find out from the time that where she died, she was about sixteen years old. So she was kind of becomes this uh kind of a classic horror trope. So her story essentially is kind of told through a um horror comic. Kind of um it reminds me of I, I believe Marvel did some of these back in the day where they have uh creep show stories, if you will, where it's you know a short story uh yeah, like a comic book and tales and, from the crypt had like comic books too for a while too I think. yes and that's very much the vibe i got from her story so much so that i thought old jack the narrator of her story was maybe the crypt keeper oh yeah i never thought about that i wonder S sally i'll tell you right now it's not um, oh dang it <laughs> um yeah so I, I i had to look into it because that was one thing that i was like that's him that's a fantastic touch no, but it isn't. But the guy's doing a pretty good impersonation of the of the Crypt Keeper, and mm -hmm. you know, there's there's some there's some great homages in this part right there. Which she um, when they they tell her story that she kind of gets kind of a second boost in her career by attending horror shows where people want to get her pictures taken with her and her boyfriend, who's actually a super fan of hers, is trying Voice to help. Ian Dallas, by the way. I did not know that. Yeah, was he yeah. really? That's... Yeah. <laughs> He's trying to help her get her screen back. So uh, essentially this horror story comes upon her and you start hearing the Halloween theme. 
from uh, John Carpenter movie, and I thought that was a really mm-hmm. nice touch. That um, was. Yeah, I, I like that. Eventually, it leads to kind of her. Was she murdered or was she just disappeared? Because eventually, it ends kind of with being surrounded by what she thought were super fans, but kind of were ghouls, right? But so there, there were some, there were some uh, radio broadcasts that happened throughout there where they were saying that there were. I don't know masked if like, man with a hook on his hand. That's right. They, was, they was said the, it was a group of of two individuals, and then they said it was a masked man with a hook. And I don't know. I I mean I, not that you should take to the internet, but mm-hmm. so, there's some that theorize different things. They say that it was a serial killer, a cult came in and and murdered her, and then something as simple as a home invasion. So but, I, who knows, right? <laughs> yeah, because did her boyfriend die too, or he just disappeared? Because so boyfriend he... disappeared and then was blamed for it. Ah, okay, uh, that's but, Steve. Uh, but, all the all the while, Walter was under the bed, right? Like, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Poor Walter. <laughs> and we'll, and we'll come. We'll come to Walter in a minute because that has some impact on that. But mm-hmm. but yeah, so she kind of goes through, you know, being stalked by this guy chasing her through the house and eventually leads to her death at the end. But she lives the, the, the trope of uh, every horror film for, for the eighties, at least that she's a teenager and there's someone in the house chasing after her a monster, if you will, stalking her through the house. But no, it's, it's, they make you kind of live this trope. And I, I thought it was a fantastic touch. I, I have a tendency here on the cartridge club to always kind of like the, horror theme levels to see the DuckTales episode. Yeah, three, <laughs> that's three months yeah. in a row now. So, yeah, so it, it, well, as soon as I saw that, I was like, this is, I don't know, it right in the wheelhouse of what I what I've, I enjoy. Barbara was the one that stood out the most for me. Yeah, and she kind of got her, like, that was her moment, right? The, the whole, like, she's been struggling to recreate this thing that made her famous when she was young. And then in this final moment, she nails the performance, right? Or that's the that's mm-hmm. how the story portrays mm-hmm. it. But her story was actually published this way. Yeah, which right. I thought was weird. Like, yeah, it was literally a a Tales from the Crypt sort of legend that was published. Yeah, sorry. Oh, that's that, that's. <laughs> I was just it's, yeah. It's strange because all all the other ones are creations to some extent mm-hmm. of other storytellers. This one is like. A published work mm-hmm. uh, on top of it, which is which is just kind of. Bizarre. Do you think? Sorry, do you uh, thinking of Barbara's death, like the ear? Do you think the the severed ear in the music box has any anything? What's the symbolism behind that? I, I think it just has to do with the sound of the scream, because it was the sound of the scream that really made or broke her career, and so short of. Like if, if, if from a design perspective, or I guess from a, from a logic perspective, it might make more sense if it was like her throat in the, Mm, in the thing, but from a visual perspective, you're not going to recognize what the inside of a throat looks like. Like, so they probably had to find something that was recognizable. And I think that's probably where the ear came from. That's my guess. Anyway, maybe it's a nudge wink play by ear. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He did say that. That's right. Maybe. Yeah. So maybe he was the killer after all. Rick, that jerk boyfriend. I thought it was Steve. Steve. No, it's Rick, I think. It's got to be Rick, right? 
I'm going to look this up. You carry I on. I think with it's your... Rick, right? Isn't it? Yeah, no? Team Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Steve doesn't. Yeah, no, it's got to be Rick. Okay. Ron, Rick, something. Ruh, ruh, ruh. Yeah. <laughs> That'll Fair teach enough. you, Musty, to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It seems like something a Steve would do. Uh, you're right. I don't. A Steve or a Chad, probably, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great um so tying this to the ear the one person who would have heard this scream and lived to tell the story that was a good segue i just got a pause for a moment. that was pretty good <laughs> is walter right mm-hmm. and, so, and so walter walter is is uh barbara's younger brother who she was babysitting that youngest night. youngest mm-hmm. brother and so Walter kind of takes this, takes it kind of, it, it impacts him quite a bit. And so mm-hmm. Sarah, you you kind of claimed this one. So I want to let you have uh, have some time to talk about what what kind of happened to Walter after that whole event, and then again how he kind of his his the rest of his life plays out. So he during that evening when Barbara was killed. He was hiding under the bed. Yeah. And uh, he was just a young lad. He's the youngest born and frankly, a little freaked out. And basically, he went into the basement. I guess Edie built him a bunker in the basement. And that's where he stayed from 1968 to 2005. (laughs) He just lived in the basement. And I found that interesting, too, because you go into his bedroom, his his childhood bedroom is the first room that you access before you go into Molly's room, and it's pretty much empty, and it hasn't been sealed. You go down into the basement, into the bunker, and you start to feel a little bit claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. You, you see that there are cans... Basically, it's uh, what what do they call that? A prepper? Doomsday, doomsday prepper. Yeah, a, yeah. a, a, a prepper. Bombshell bunker. Yeah, exactly. You see all kinds of food and rice and what have you, and you kind of make your way through a tunnel, and then you access a doorway, and then Walter's story begins, and basically it just kind of quickly shows. That a day in the life of, which really doesn't change too much every <laughs> single day. I mean, every day at noon, there's what what you know is a train, but he calls a monster beyond the mm-hmm. door. And um, he eats peaches and he listens to the radio. And for every era <laughs> that passes, and the way that you know this is through a calendar. They have a calendar posted on the wall. Every year that passes... It's the the radio changes its music of the era. So in the 60, 68, you have sort of like, I don't know what the yard birds or something, you know, <laughs> that kind of music. And then you, you, you find yourself in the disco era. <laughs> and then sooner or later you find yourself in 2005 and there's a bit of grunge in the, in the, uh, on the radio He's still eating the same peaches, mm-hmm. you know. He's still hearing the train go by until one day the train stops. He doesn't hear it. 
and he waits a week and it's total silence. And he just gets sick and tired of sitting there rotting, waiting for this train to go by. He decides that's it. I've had enough of this. I'm going to go. I am going to go out there and I'm going to, uh, discover what life is about. And he, uh, even if it, it's a month, a year, a month, a day, I just want to go out there. And so he breaks, breaks through somehow. There isn't a doorway or anything, but he sort of has to break through a wall. It was like a wall of bricks, right? Right. And he ends up out there and he basically says, I want to feel the sun on my face. And just when he says that, a train goes by and kills him. <laughs> or <laughs> what sun, we think is, is a train. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. You you see the light come and it sort of right. Yeah. And uh it's sort of shocking that way. Now there are certain theories around whether or not it was a train, because he breaks the wall and he ends up in some sort of tunnel and it has train tracks on it. Um, and he proceeds to walk out of the tunnel and this whatever train goes in and hits him, or so we think. But as, Ed as uh, Edith, when you're, when you're going through the bunker and you go out, there's actual train tracks. And if you walk further past the, uh, the tunnel, you do find Walter's uh, shrine. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, you see that the train tracks end right at the precipice of a cliff. Like there was once train tracks there. And mm -hmm. if you even look beyond down below, you could see the remnants of, a, of, of tracks there. It was almost like there was a tsunami or a storm or something that washed part of it away. Or maybe he even like walked if if the if the train track was already gone when Walter came out, maybe he just was so enamored by the sun he just kept walking toward it and then maybe fell off the cliff or something. Maybe that's a possibility too. Huh. Now there is some irony to this whole thing. When Walter was a little kid, he was obsessed with trains. Obsessed, like his whole room was full of train train stuff. The his door had like the crisscross railway. Oh, yeah. There were trains on on the curtains. He had toy trains all over the place. So <laughs> there's a bit of uh, irony in that he gets so-called hit by a train. <laughs> like that's how he dies. I'm not sure what's real and what what isn't. It could all be fantasy. He could have had a heart attack breaking through the wall. We don't yeah. know. He probably know? didn't get much exercise down there. So just hitting a wall with a sledgehammer probably would be enough to. You know, you know, or, yeah. you know, like the air was thin up there. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know. We, we don't know. It's one of those that Walter's story is one of the stories that at first I was like, this is unbelievable. I just how could someone be in a room for 30 years and, and you know, think that there's a train that the sound of a train is a demon or whatever it might a be monster. a monster, a monster. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized like he stunted like he, he went down there at 10 years old. 
And this prepping, yep. this prepping environment, this, this, uh, had to have already been created. He wouldn't have created it at 10 years old. So there's already this narrative in their family of prepping for the worst. And so he found this prepping room, got down there, lived there for 30 years. So as a, as a 40 year old person, he still has the mindset probably of a 10 year old, which I really think is cool because it's almost a microcosm of the homeschool environment where the entire rest of the, of the thing is talking about how homeschooling and not, I don't want to denigrate homeschooling. That's not what I'm trying to do. But like, it's basically saying homeschooling is a sense of uh, like being removed from a larger societal group. This is a microcosm of that. This is like even removed even from the homeschooled microcosm. So like you're even more isolated. And so I finally, I kind of finally started like, it took me a couple of playthroughs and I'm like, okay, I, I guess I buy it. I guess I buy it. And if you were to break through the wall and see sun for the first time in 30 years, yeah, you might be a little distracted, especially if there's a train coming your way. You know, you yep. might actually fall into that. So it took me a couple of playthroughs, but yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it's quite possible. Um, if you're isolated in the in a basement like that, too, you're a 10 year old. You wouldn't have much social skills. And there was some inference that Edie was going down there every once in a while to bring him food probably social interaction through that Pro probably getting taught you know probably mm -hmm. getting taught some school stuff i mean how else would he be able to string together a, a sentence hey you're right that's that's a good point but i was a little puzzled too that when he broke through the wall that he didn't realize there were train tracks there but again it could just simply be that he was just totally disoriented being out in fresh air that's a good point, actually, because you would think that he would know there were train tracks there before. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so the, like he would have known that's the noise. Yeah. Like so he, it makes me it makes you question if the train tracks are even like real. I don't know. That's I even wrote down the monster on the other side of the door. Yeah, that's he should what know he was what that calling is. it. Huh. You know, yeah, that's so good point. That, that was a bit and he's he's also dealing with coming off of a trauma, right? And so oh, yeah. he may he may just be having some some PTSD and that is his justification. Absolutely. Um, that's true. Hey, actually the, the idea that as a kid, you sort of have to justify things in a way that the family is always justifying things like, right. Like as a kid, you have to almost justify, like that's a monster sound. Like you're creating these legends in your head the same way that your family is creating a legend. So I guess that kind of makes sense. I guess. I don't know. Anyways, I really enjoyed that character. I thought it was different. I don't identify with him at all, but he is different. And I, yeah, I, I thought it was, it was really cool. One last thing though, um, after you walk out and you see the train tracks fall down the cliff and uh, you, you continue down a small pathway. And if you look up into the trees, you're, you're Edith at this point, look up into the trees, you could see the, the uh, chairs from the wedding yeah. stuck in the trees. Yeah. <laughs> so that brings it right back to uh, Gus. That's right. Yeah. That's, I that's thought that was cool. Right. Yeah. But um, uh, I, I believe Walter's situation was before Gus's. Mm -hmm. So it, it's sort of a foreshadowing. Well, and it's interesting too, because th this actually brings up a great, like th the level design in this game is fantastic. So as you're exiting Walter's area, I believe is that right before you sort of first experience like the cemetery? Is that yeah, accurate? Okay, that's yeah, correct. That's right. 
So you like head toward the cemetery and you head like the, the game is telling you to basically go toward this light, essentially to bring back the whole light analogy, head toward the light. But once you do that, you're like, now what do I do? Well, if you turn mm-hmm. around 180 degrees, you're like, oh, there's another path back there. You're right. And I love that this game is built in a way to say, to focus you in one direction. And then it's only when you turn around that you actually see there was another path. The same thing happens when you first go to Milton's artist thing toward the top of the house. Like you go straight toward Milton's thing. And it's not until you leave it and and come back that you realize, oh, there's another stairway up. So you could, if you're a real gamer and you sort of want to defy conventions and sort of go in the opposite direction it's telling you to do, mm-hmm. you could miss Milton's story entirely. Like there, there is the possibility of doing that, which yes. I think is really, really, really cool. And that they're still confident in that. I'll, I'll ask this question because it's along the same lines. How many of you knew Edith was pregnant before she said she was pregnant? Okay. We got one, one out of four of us. Not me. Like it's crazy because the whole time you could have looked down and seen that you were 22 weeks pregnant. I did. But, but but like most people don't do that until she says it. Like you had the capability of seeing something the entire time and you didn't. And that's just a true testament to how great this game is designed. I, uh, I looked right down to her feet to see what shoes she's wearing. And, you know, Cause she has these finger gloves. She, she has awesome gloves. I know. I want those gloves. <laughs> and uh, her, her nails are, are well manicured. <laughs> and of course for the time, you know, like that's what, what uh, the girls do now. But uh, I was curious to see what she was wearing just out of curiosity. So I looked down and I noticed her belly was quite protruded, uh, protr- protruding. And um, I'm did like, you know, I wonder, if, you? say again. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just going to say, did that ruin it at all for you? Like, did you no. get a sense? Okay, that's good. No, uh, you know, like I, I wasn't sure what to make of it. I'm like, she seems pregnant to me. She seems a little too thin and she's not malnourished. I don't think mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, she must be pregnant. I just guessed it. It wasn't hmm. until much later when they say, "Yeah, I'm tw- I if I'd only known, I you know, I wouldn't be jumping on the roof, twenty two weeks pregnant." I'm like, "Aha!" You know. I love that. Yeah, especially right after Molly's, because you go right out the window and mm-hmm. along right. the along the uh, the gutters there, and mm-hmm. it's kind of crazy. Well, I uh, questioned walking through the doggy door then after finding I was pregnant. I was like, "That's true. That's a good point." There, but... <laughs> that's a good point. Also, it's only 22 weeks, though, so that's not, you know, too bad. I think the reason why I didn't do it is I'm so used to first-person shooters that are just a camera (laughs) set about yay high, right? That's like a big tech. That was like the technological achievement, right? Is like when they finally were able to consistently have feet and first-person shooters, you're like, oh, man, we're like in the new generation. This is amazing. You can have feet. Yeah, so people still aren't primed to actually expect feet mm. yeah yeah uh, could i could i ask around the table how people played this game i i played on pc with with a keyboard and mouse i played on, I played on yeah. yeah i played on the playstation 4 so you were using a handheld uh controller okay mm-hmm. controller okay uh it seems to be a habit of mine because i i play a lot uh, most of the games i play are on pc and I play a lot with the keyboard and mouse and just looking down seems to be a lot of the kind of thing that I do. If I'm put into the body of, you know, a first person game, 
looking down, that's just something I do. So mm -hmm. it, it was natural for me to look down and, and notice those things. Hmm. Yeah. And I've, I've, there's a video, um, PlayStation access is a great channel. You all should subscribe to it. It's a fantastic uh, YouTube channel, but they have a Friday feature where, uh, Rob, one of their main guys talks about like the things that gamers do all the time. And one of the things I talked about was like, when you play a first person shooter, like, do you look down or do you not? And that, that sort of determines what kind of gamer you are. Um, and they, he actually, if I remember correctly, he did say like, if you tend to look down right away, you probably have a PC lineage because that's such a thing that was defining across the generations is that you would actually have legs. Whereas console gamers, because our lineage isn't first person shooters, it's like, we don't, we're not primed to actually think to do that. And so anyway, that's a shout out, I guess, to play, PlayStation access. It's a good channel. Anyway, that is interesting. Yeah. So it's interesting. We've been talking about Edith and pregnancy and babies because the next story that we wanted to talk about, Caleb, I'm going to let you take this one, <laughs> but it's one that I think uh, resonates the most with a lot of people just because of the shoes that you're put in. <laughs> and that is Gregory's story. And Gregory, as we've alluded to already is the, is the, the youngest death in this game and it is it is one that well i'll i'll, I'll let you caleb talk <laughs> about it but uh it, it, i i know that there are people especially some that have commented on you know with their impressions of the game who just this is the moment that to them sticks out right uh, and that's gregory's story and i'll be quick with it i did talk a little bit about gregory earlier i'll be quick with it but i will also tell all of the listeners to keep listening because the other story that a lot of people really resonate with is lewis's story so it mm -hmm. and it's i think lewis's story is probably the coolest and most interesting um so stick around for that um which is next so gregory we've already talked about gregory being a baby you know being young the reason why it resonated with me is not only because of that i've already alluded to that earlier but also because i felt like this was a great almost like uh, if you think uh, sh hmm, let me just come out with it i guess um it's a it's a great representation of sort of the game at large so in the same way that edith or, or edie great grandma edie is trying to imbue their her family with story and trying to make everything make sense through narrative and that's actually one of the things that ian dallas said as well is that like story is a way to try to make sense of the unknowable like if you can't truly comprehend something, you assign archetypes to it. You assign characters to it. You, you try to make it understandable through story. And so I felt like Gregory's story was a good representation of that because we as adults, some of us have kids. I know when you see a kid do something funny or do something weird, you are approaching that from the perspective of an adult. And you think they're doing this because they because of X, Y, Z, like you're trying to, you're trying to categorize and rationalize exactly why a kid is doing something. And so the story of Gregory, who's in a bathtub immediately, like the first thing you hear is the parents of Gregory talking about uh, how Gregory used to pretend in the bathtub. It looked as though Gregory had this whole scenario going on in his head and he didn't really truly understand what he was doing with his play, but it looked as though he was, he was having a whole story in his head. And so when you're placed in the eye, when the head of, of Gregory immediately, you have this uh, symphony going on, this music, this orchestra that's going on and, the, and all this crazy stuff that's going on. And it's almost like a dance routine where you're the toys you're playing with as Gregory, you reach out, you grab a toy frog or whatever, and you're playing with this toy and you're, you're kind of messing around with it. And 
it, it makes sense in the story because you're like, oh yeah, you know, Gregory is 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 playing, and we have to as adults try to understand why he's playing. Like rather than just accepting that babies play and that's what they do, like we as adults have to try to categorize that and understand that. Oh, he's playing with that because he imagines his toys are saying things or his toys are characters in a play or whatever it is. And so the entire experience of Gregory is through really the lens of an adult trying to understand and, and try to appreciate why Gregory is doing the things that he's doing, which I felt like I felt that was a microcosm. I've used that term already before, but I'll use it again. It's sort of a microcosm of the entire game. What remains of Edith Finch? You're trying to assign story to this behavior to rationalize it, to make sense of it, to understand it. And so when he ends up dying because of the story, essentially, um, that makes it all the more heartbreaking. Um, it's not just the fact that this one-year-old is dying, but he's dying. It, I don't know. This just really, I think, solidified the idea that we assign story to death to rationalize it. And that was big to me. So that's, that's, and plus I was probably a new, uh, um, I don't know, this game came out, I played this like two years ago. And my, my youngest kid was probably three. And so I still had some of those like fatherhood emotions, I guess. So uh, that probably helped as well, I think. But I, I love Gregory's story as much as it's sad. I still love it. And I think it's a pinnacle of, of gaming, honestly, in general, like it's, it's a pinnacle of gaming experience outside of this game, every game. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Some of the choreography and like the music, like it's just, it's, it's like cinematically beautiful, even though at that point you, you know, you have a, a good feeling of what's coming. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. almost like if you've, if you've watched old Looney Tunes cartoons, they used to, take like public domain um, <laughs> Beethoven works and things like that. It, it's like that because as a kid, I mean, that's my experience as a childhood It's Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies and those things where it's just a bunch of shapes and characters moving around to a music track. And I feel like there's something of that in here. Again, something I wish I would have asked Ian Dallas when I interviewed him, but like, I feel like there's something of that in here where they're trying to categorize. They're trying to organize this experience through something that makes sense and and music makes sense to a lot of adults and a lot of people the logic of music makes sense so let me categorize an ex the, the childhood experience through music and i feel like they were kind of doing that a little to, to a degree because there's no other there's no other death in the entire game that relies on music that heavily so why why incorporate it here well they're mm. trying to rationalize how a child thinks and so i i freaking loved it I, I loved it i love baby death what can i say <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be the clip that you isolate from this whole thing <laughs> potentially <laughs> anyway but yeah so i uh, did uh let's go ahead and mo uh, move on to then the the last the last major story that we're going to address aside from talking about the remainder of edith's journey and that is lewis's story uh which is one that I and I think a lot of gamers in particular mm -hmm. really identified with. So Lewis uh, is Edith's brother. Mm -hmm. yeah. Older. Got to make sure I got those right. Brother. Yeah. Her, 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 old, her oldest brother, and uh, and he uh, is a pothead, for lack of a better term. He's <laughs> a you know his room it, itself black lights. Uh, I assume those are felt posters and uh hash pipe in the middle of the room and just like it just reeked of 
the aroma. And it's worth stating too that this house is the perfect house for a pothead. So like oh. I mean he, he oh, like wow. <laughs> this is this entire house is like a 10-year-old's dream or a 19-year-old pothead's dream. So it Well, it's not so much pothead like when I looked at the house I'm like somebody had been smoking something. <laughs> it's to great. make that house. I want to live in that house. As a kid I dreamed of secret passageways in every room. Like, oh, I want that. So anyway, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you no, off. Yeah, God, right. it's, just, it's such a great house to experience. Like, even if you everything we've said so far is horrible and you hate it and you're like, this is dumb. If you ever thought it would be cool to have a secret passageway as a kid in your house, play this game because it, it it's oh, yeah. amazing. <laughs> so anyway. That's great. The, so Lewis's story is the story of, of him actually getting sober. And it's told the words that are spoken throughout his story are the, the actual letter from his psychiatrist That's who right. is dealing with the aftermath of getting him some, some help, which clearly the, the help didn't fumigate the room or didn't, didn't, didn't <laughs> clear that out at all because um, Edith walks in and she's like, yeah, it smelled, smelled like Lewis it smelled like <laughs> it smelled like I always remembered it. And we play video games together and we, but Lewis now sober is trying to, to deal with, the monotony of life and he's continuing to work at this cannery. So they're uh, the salmon that they talk about very early in there. Mm -hmm. uh, there's shelves and shelves of salmon in the can. And, uh, and so he's, he's working at this place and his primary job is to take the fish as they come down the, the pipe and uh, put them into this automated machine that chops the heads off and then move them along. And throughout his story, you get to feel the monotony of this job because and 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 this is unlike anything from any of the previous stories you the controls in this i th i think are are what really are what draw you so deeply into this story because you are controlling his right hand with the right analog stick and you're basically you grab the fish you move it to the right chop the head off throw it while this is happening the story is talking about how Lewis was so bored with this and he was so good at it that he could just, there was nothing to it uh, that he started to develop and daydream at work. Uh, and his daydreams start as this sort of top down, almost a, I think Caleb, you and Scott had, had called it kind of almost an Atari era mm -hmm. visual of him sort of just making his way through these, these little labyrinths and these little paths and they start to take up just this little corner of the screen. So you're continuing to take these fish, cut the heads off, throw them away. And then as the letter continues on this world that he's creating for him starts to encroach more and more on reality. At one point it's taking up half of, of there and he starts to make, make up cities in his name. Lewis Topia was one of them. <laughs> uh, and he, he, he built up the city and, and, and he was living this alternative reality at work while he was doing his monotonous job. And so he started to imagine a band following him around and cheering music and a parade basically forming around him. And he always wanted to kind of seek out this new adventure. Meanwhile, all you're doing is continuing to just chop these fish and, he then decides to go on a journey and he gets on a boat. Uh, and this is where they actually introduce a little bit of choice here because you can 
take him down this path and there's some choices as to whether he would go uh, look to find a prince or a queen or whether he would go for rainbows or serpents and what type of music he would go after and, and seek of and ends up at a palace. And at this point, there's even some moments with that boat where chopping the fish actually causes <laughs> barriers in the story to open up for him. Like, I think one of them was actually a drawbridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one of them was just kind of a big, I don't know if it was a dam or something like that. But at the moment, the fish chops, like suddenly these two things are, are becoming fused and his reality is, is this living in his imagination. And he's been talking about this with his with his psychiatrist the whole time as well. Now, Lewis's demise, the moments leading up to Lewis's demise are like this triumphant moment where first he actually sees himself outside of his body in there just kind of working away. Uh, and then he goes up the conveyor belt where the fish are going. Although you seem to be going up toward this radiant light, which ends up opening into this, in his dream world, uh, this throne room where his prince or his queen are there waiting to crown him. Uh, And in that moment, he kneels, he leans forward, and he has his own head removed by the same guillotine that has been cutting off the fish heads this whole time. And I think that moment is so jarring and I, I i that's for me this this moment and gregory's moments were like two where i was just straight up dumbfounded <laughs> and replaying that one like w- one of the really cool things about about this one is that it actually keeps track of how many fish you cut <laughs> and there is a there is a leaderboard on xbox oh, Live really? <laughs> for the number oh. of fish that you cut I think on my first playthrough, I had like 83 um, and I <laughs> didn't check my most recent one, but I was far more, I feel like I was far more efficient on this one. Cause I don't think I ever had like a bottleneck. It's I was funny that just... it incentivizes you to do good at the thing that ultimately killed Milton. Yeah. Like, Lewis. The, or Lewis. I'm sorry. Lewis, Lewis. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. But there's just something about this story about, uh, and about, and talking about the, you know, living in the clouds and, 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 you know, doing what seems to be too much daydreaming because he was just tired of it. And it's just, it's, it's a insane way to end that, end that stretch. So I, I, I hope I told it well, and I hope that that was not people's first time of hearing this. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because it like the whole point of that is to make monot is, is to demonize monotony, basically saying like doing repetitious tasks could potentially kill you and i'm not saying that's like the overt message but it's like that's one of the takeaways from it but in in, in great grandma Edie's whole point is to try to remove the monotony from death like her whole being is to say i want to make death unique i want to make it something you know very unique and so it's almost like as though uh, lewis's story is like the epitome of like what great grandma Edie wants um but at the same time you get to experience it in a way that Edie would never have been able to experience. You actually get to see it. You get to see him droning on and like moving fish, but not actually moving fish. Like when you mentioned how you step away from the actual first person and you're in third person for a little bit at that point, if you'll, you'll notice like Lewis isn't moving fish at all. He's just sort of droning on. And again, you can't see my camera, but he's drawing, droning on and on and on and not really accomplishing anything. 
which I thought was incredibly poignant and incredibly cool. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's a really really cool story. It's it's I would like to see almost an entire like experimental game that's like just that. Um, <laughs> I think there's a I think that could that could be explored even further than it was in this game. But uh, yeah, it's really cool. So unique. Yeah, it's so different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and, and, and it is the last of the. Uh, the the last of the major stories that mm-hmm. that you get through that the rest of the mm-hmm. story is is really told through Edith's perspective and kind of addresses them them leaving the house and so I guess unless there were any other final thoughts on Lewis's story I I, I think I said my piece but I really like that story like a, it, as difficult as that was to realize what had happened it's 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 the part that I think stuck with me the most out of this game. Yeah. And you got to think he's given, he's trying to justify his own existence through story. Again, it all comes down to justifying something through story, using mm-hmm. story to justify the various events that happen in life. And so he's trying to say, I want to justify my life by imbuing the story around it. I'm not Lewis at a cannery. I'm Lewis. I'm a King. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm this big thing. I'm I, so he's creating the story around to justify his own exist own existence, which again, I think if 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 I were to step back and say like, what's the pairing in the family that like I would look at and be like, that's a kind of a quirky pairing. It would be like Lewis and great grandma Edie. Like they would be these unexpected friends that would just hang out with each other. And like, you know, it would just be like those, that pairing would be just a fantastic pairing. So um, I think his story really exemplifies a lot and it makes sense because it's at the end. I mean, we talked about earlier about like, what's the, what's the order of the stories Lewis's story wouldn't have worked at the beginning. It has to be at the end. It really does. So, yeah. That's fantastic. So, so we didn't really talk too much about, about how things... We we kind of alluded earlier that, that there's this moment then with, with Edith and Dawn where they up and leave. And mm-hmm. uh, leave trying to kind of break this, this cycle that is great-grandma Edie's, you know, tendency to assign this additional sort of story to everything that's going on in this family's life uh, and trying to, trying to get away from that. And so you, you leave that and you start to then see what is, what is actually going on here. And it doesn't, it does a strange thing in, in, in that all of a sudden you are then in the perspective of, uh, of Edith's child, mm-hmm. uh, and this this story then is is being told to Christopher, this uh, which would be her son. So you kind of have your your big. You mentioned a few of these 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 halo moments. Mm-hmm. Um, that's about as halo moment as you can get <laughs> um, with with birth canal and all that. And so this there was a point that I I was going to make earlier about a a a a suspicion that I had, and that is that. I feel like it's possible that this entire game is played as Christopher and that this is Christopher going through Edith's journal because at the end you are like you, you are as Christopher. Now there's, there's one point and I, I wish I knew whose hand it was. Oh, I suspect it's, I suspect it's Edith's, but you, you can, you have your arm out the window mm-hmm. and you can kind of do that like up and down kind of wave yeah. thing. Which every kid in the world has it's her outside their Absolutely. window, right? <laughs> it's her. Yeah. It's it's Edith. It is Edith in that moment. Okay. Yeah, because part of she me was thinking saying... it might have been Christopher on his way there. Oh. Uh, 
No, because, I, well, because she she was seated at at the table with uh, Edie and and Don, like, and the two adults were talking about leaving and arguing about leaving, and ten year old Edith is sitting there with the chopsticks, and she's wearing the the gloves, mm-hmm. and she's eating her food with the chopsticks, <laughs> kind of awkwardly, you know, picking up food with uh, a chopstick in either hand kind of thing and eating it like that and then uh and she's wearing the same gloves in the car yeah and and i have some thoughts on this too but but musty i'll let you like i don't know if you have a further sort of i don't i I don't know that i do i I, it was just it was a thought that i had that perhaps and and i had some thoughts when i was talking god i've said this so many times i feel like a total d-bag um i i i've when i was talking with uh Ian Dallas, I like brought up the idea of like, I had some theories and he basically shut all the theories down on account of game mechanics and game limitations. So like one of the theories I had was, you know, are, was Edith possibly like raped? That's, that's one of the things I thought, because if you think about it, really the female has control over the, 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 the lineage, the story. Right. And so a female could potentially say, I want to end this. Therefore, I'm not going to have kids. If I don't have kids, it's ended. Right. And because she was pregnant, but she knew of the legend, it was okay. Well, I must not have had control over this because I'm conscious. I'm aware enough to know that I should end this, but I haven't ended it. And therefore maybe something. So I asked him about that and he was like, no, that's, that's stupid. Uh, he didn't say stupid, but, <laughs> no, yeah, but, I, but essentially I don't, I don't he said that. that. Yeah. So like he, he basically shot that down. And so then I was like, well, um, and then I was thinking like in terms of like the next of kin is a male. And so if the next of kin is a male, which is Christopher, the the guy who opens the story and then closes the story because he's a male, was that a conscious decision to say that like, now there's the opportunity to stop the lineage basically. Like he now has the ability to not impregnate anybody, but he was like, no, we just made him a male because like we wanted him to be different than Edith. We didn't want confusion. Like we gave him a cast and we gave him a Christopher so that people wouldn't think he was Edith. Like that's all, that's all it was. And and I loved like when he, when he explained that to me, it was so incredible because I'm like, I'm looking way too deep into this. Mm-hmm. They made, they made decisions based off their technical limitations and based off of like what players would intuit they didn't make decisions all the time based on the story necessarily. And I was like, that's, it just blew my mind because I'm like, I feel like, like I should, like I'm trying to read into all of these things. And he's like, no man, you're, you're reading way too much into this. Like, no, yeah. we get him a cast to make him different than Edith. That's it. Like there's no deeper meaning. And I was like, that's really incredible and, and cool. Um, so I don't know. I think there was like some, so I, I think it was intentional that Christopher was the framing device. He was the intro. He was the outro and him reading the journal was the story. So I, I think you are playing as Edith. It's just Christopher's the framing device is what I think. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. That's what I think too. And uh, about this thing about the sexes, you look at Odin, the reason he came to America in the first place was because he lost his wife and daughter. Mm. So he, He's the he was the engine that brought him to the states, you know. Yeah, like good point, yeah. You know, and well, his wife and one of his kids. So uh, because he 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 came to America with you know Edie and so, her husband. 
So if he's like the quote unquote seed of the of the curse, if we want to call it the curse or the legend or whatever, like it's almost like it shines a light on him being super selfish, right? Like he's willing to procreate knowing that this is a possible you're giving you're you're giving birth knowing that you're killing someone by giving birth to them kind of thing is the way I I, I guess that kind of I don't know. Well, huh. you know, like you look at Odin, he I don't think he necessarily looked at that as a curse. He like escaping a curse. I, I think that he was probably coming to America to change the winds kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he brought his house with him. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, why would you do that? I, that I is know. a weird that you're right. That's like so weird that like, like maybe the court. curse, if it, there is a curse is this house that is you're bringing. House, yeah. I don't know. Huh. I don't well, know. And he point. ended up dying, so it doesn't matter, right? It's true. Yeah, that's a fair point, though. Like, because I think at some point Edith does say, like, the house is kind of the curse. It's the house is the curse, like, not the yes. stories or anything. And yep. yeah, but, but, but the actual, like, original house is still in the ocean. We didn't really talk on that, but much, but like, the house that they have on land isn't actually the house. It was right. You know, and it was throughout the generations, you see this house. Oh, in the ocean with the little red light. Yeah, you're constantly having to blinking. look at it. It's there. Yeah. It's always in your mind. It's always your consciousness. And right. your consciousness is what's going to shape this kind of stories mm-hmm. you tell. So if you're right. always seeing this flashing light, of course, you're going to like create stories. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, that's that's cool. I like that. Wow. <laughs> like i said this is like the my top three favorite games of all time. Like I'm going to continually if I was ever going to write like a boss fight books book. It would be about what remains of Edith Finch. Like I freaking you love should, this game. Man. I you should. should. Yeah. If you're listening to Boss Fight Books, I have a lot of time. <laughs> the books. Like I, I didn't uh I recognized a few of the books in the uh shelves and I found that they repeated. Yeah, they did a lot, actually. Okay. I, I asked Ian Dallas about this um, because I actually on my website, uh CalebJross.com, if if anyone is still listening to this. I, I create a list of all of the books that appear in the game and they repeat a lot. And I asked him about this because there's a, there's a particular book called infinite jest by, by David Foster Wallace, which is notoriously a very thick book, but there are several instances of this book being very thin on the shelves. And I, asked <laughs> him, I, I asked him about this. I'm like, did that bother you? And he said, yeah, it did at first, but I gave up on that like long ago. Because he realized that from a development standpoint, it's very difficult to make accurate spine. Like it's so much more time effective to just randomly assign spine widths and titles just at random. Like it's not, it doesn't make sense to actually like try to create actual like mm-hmm. time, you know? And he's like, originally the, the, the there was only like, you know, a, a dozen or so different books. And he's like, he was like, I was lucky to get like, a couple hundred books like he you know so yeah it was kind of like i don't think they counted on people nerds like me like digging in and seeing like you repeated this book a thousand times that's i'm uh, always <laughs> looking at the bookshelves yeah. uh and uh alice in wonderland i've read that book there was into the wild mm-hmm. by john Krakauer. i've read that book i really like that one but you know there were some that I, I think they were just taking the piss, to be honest. Uh, you know, <laughs> they were just making up titles as they went along. And I, you know. it, 
in my in I, my uh, in my my page that I created. So if you just if you just search Google for like what remains of Edith Finch books or something, you'll find mm-hmm. it. But I included the author as well, and there's a lot of books that don't have authors. So I'm pretty sure they just made up the titles for a lot, of, especially yeah. the cookbooks. The cookbooks were the ones that I found no right. authors for at all. Right. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> so I. I, I do want to, for the sake of time, I do oh, want to yes. I do want to to kind of tie some things up here. I uh, just wanted to kind of ask very quickly, uh, and Ryan, I want to I do want to come to you on this. Were there any favorite moments, maybe that aren't necessarily tied to any one story, but there's just things that you found that you were particularly fond of, or made you gave you some kind of a a, a response, Ryan? The pink bathroom. Yes, <laughs> I have one of those. I have one of those <laughs> with carpet so, and everything. Uh, I threw away the carpet when I when I bought the house. It was carpet little, in the bathroom is the weirdest thing. Yeah, it was a little too uh, too old. Uh, it yeah. needed to go. So um, yeah, I've I've shown off my pink bathroom on the last Cartridge Club charity streams. I made it an incentive if I could raise a certain amount of money <laughs> in my stream. I would show off the pink bathroom. Musty, you have seen my pink bathroom. Oh, I have with the gold yeah. foil wallpaper and all yeah. that. Awesome. It's, uh, yeah, it's but magnificent. I, as, as, as I was playing the game and you walk in it, it was one of those moments. I was like, hey, I have one of these. You know, you know, it, was, it was just and a he little, questioned yeah. everything about your family and death. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't have a secret passage in my my bathroom, but you know I do have a pink bathroom. So step it up, one. Ryan. Step <laughs> it up. So. I think I think if if I can throw one thing out there that I, that was like a cool moment, oh, the way that Odin's story is portrayed is mm-hmm. as if you were using an old Viewmaster. Yeah, I love uh, that too. Oh, yes. and 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 it was very much you you had to use the right trigger as the <laughs> the pull down to advance it to the next. The next in the circular slide, uh, Viewmaster. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah. that was that was a really cool inclusion. Now, funny enough, that story I missed. I missed Odin's story the first time through. Really? Oh, yeah. You can leave that room yeah. without without yeah. going through that story. Mm. Um, and I honestly, I have to wonder if you can do that with. Uh, there's some that kind of you kind of have to move along i think you Um, can but i think that's a commentary on the power of narrative right like if you don't willingly experience the narrative mm -hmm. then you're gonna miss out and that's kind of almost the commentary of the game like are you gonna miss out on life if you don't attribute a story to that Mm -hmm. event in your life like it i think it's i think it's awesome that you can actually play the game and miss some of the stories honestly i wish they would have created a game where you could not experience any of those stories. Like it's almost like a, a far cry four thing where it's like, you could just wait 15 <laughs> seconds and like not experience the game at all and still technically beat it. Like that would be kind of mm, cool well, too, uh, right? to throw another homage, not homage, but another reference to another walking sim gone home. Is that way yeah. you can finish yes. that game within a minute? Yep. If you, if you choose to, but yeah. yep. Yep. Did, yep. Uh, did either, Caleb or Sarah, did either of you have have any other moments that you wanted to mention before we get some community impressions here? Um, the only thing I'll mention is I don't know how many people. This is probably a deep cut, but I don't know how many people realize that Milton's story was the same story as a as the previous game that uh, this company created called um, God. What was the name of this, the game? Uh, uh, Unfinished the Unfinished Swan. Swan. The Unfinished Swan. Thank you very much. Uh, the Unfinished Swan, which is a great game, by the way. Like it, the Unfinished Swan is technically the first game by Giant Sparrow Studios. 
Um, and it's a very different game, but it's still a very cool looking game. Like it's a cool, uh, just visual, visually, visually cool game. And so I would highly recommend everyone play that a um, couple hours as well. Pretty close to a walking simulator. I mean, there are technically loose conditions, so it's not actually a walking simulator, but very good. But yeah, the uh, the king in that game, which is sort of your guiding legend orator, is Milton. And the, the kid in that game, the, the protagonist that you play as, is Monroe which I think is a character that's mentioned a couple of times in What Remains of Edith Finch, but it's not like a main character. But yeah, you get to play as that. And so you get a little bit more insight into the one of the uh, penultimate stories um, in, this, in the What Remains of Edith Finch, where you are um, the, the guy who falls into the painting, essentially. It's basically the game of the guy who falls into the painting. So I would highly recommend everyone play that. It's very good, very interesting. Did design-wise, not nearly as deep as what remains of Edith Finch from a story perspective, but still very cool and part of the lore. It's it's official it's official canon, so definitely take take a look. Uh what I would say is uh Edie. Edie in general, I loved going through her room and mm. finding all the elements that I, I'm into, like there's wool, so she knits, she crochets she does cross stitching she <laughs> sews you know she paints all all the things that i i i'm into uh, i'm pretty crafty but uh i also enjoyed experiencing edie herself when she was actually explaining how there was such a low tie that she was able to access the house, yeah. her, the original house for one last time. And I don't know how you can interpret it, but you know, she finally reaches the house and a light goes on. Mm -hmm. And uh, just then <laughs> Dawn says, what are you doing to Edith? And of course she's reading the book and that's where all this falls apart. I just thought that that was uh, quite interesting. You know, he, she, she gets lost out there in the um and it's it smells and i i got to interact with my my things again it was like i was coming home and you know like i i thought that that was very interesting you know i want their next game to be an ed game like i want the entire game to be ed i want to understand what caused ed to want to imbue every event with story like, why was that so important to her? That's what I want. I want the next game to be that. Yeah. I, if, you know, if there's a continuation, <laughs> there better be. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's not much out there right now yeah. of, of what they're, what they're working on next, but I'm, I think we're all fairly, fairly excited for it. Uh, whenever word gets out. And there are lots of people who are excited about this game this month. We had a fair number of, uh, community members who decided to join in. So I want to give special shout out to those who played along. Uh, we had Kevin, Buried on Mars. We had Catherine and Miles from Flock of Nerds. Pam from Cannot Be Tamed. Uh, Dean, as mentioned before, Round 2 Gaming. Uh, Travis and, and Jake, both from Polykill Podcast. And Josh were the ones who vocalized them uh, playing along in either Twitter or on uh, on the forums over at cartridgeclub.org. But we did ask for some community impressions. And so, Ryan, I want to throw to you 
to uh, give us the responses that we got from the community on Twitter when we asked for some thoughts on the game. Sure. So starting us off, we have Trav Travis uh, from Polykill, and he writes delightfully tragic. Uh, following that up, dumb comment by Trav. Well, following that up, his <laughs> his co-host from the Polykill podcast, we have Jake, and he writes the best the best first person experience I've played. It's an amazing soundtrack, intriguing, but an accessible story. Lovely art. You're stupid, Jake. All right, keep going. Uh, we also have your co-host, Caleb. VG oh, Collectaholic here. What yeah. a dick. <laughs> he writes, uh, he writes, questionable arc. Uh, I can't say this word. Architectural stability. <laughs> Thank you. Grammatical stability. Questionable grammatical stability. Um, yeah, he's a he's a lawyer. So what the fuck does he know about architecture? <laughs> Make your words easier. <laughs> uh, we have uh, Cartridge Bros. This is Sean from the Cartridge Brothers. He writes, "I really enjoyed this experience. I'm glad you guys gave gave me the push to play it, and it's on Game Pass. Gave me the means." Yeah. Well, uh, I would say that. Uh, did the game appreciate the experience as well? Because I, I guess no. So we'll we'll follow that up with Josh from Frantic Society. He writes <laughs> heartbreaking, beautiful, and thought provoking. You only have the right to comment on Kingdom Hearts games. Shut up, okay. Josh. <laughs> and then we have Kovic, and he writes, "It might be fairly short, but it's a game that keeps you intrigued throughout and makes you want to finish in one sitting. The bathtub sequence won't be forgotten anytime soon." He goes, I played this game over a year ago, but I still vividly remember it. That says a lot. All of those comments describe the porno I've created, uh, which you can find at, I don't know. No, no. (laughs) Stop there. (laughs) And we have one comment from the CC forums here, and it's from Pam. And she writes, man, what a good game. I love so much of what they do here. The way they present the words on the screen and the different ways that they fall, dispense, or flung away when you're done with them. How different each little story vignette plays and how such different lengths. The ultimate satisfaction of finding and using secret passages and the way the shark rolls down a cliff. (laughs) This time when playing, I immediately looked down to see my character's model. The first time around, her being pregnant was a surprise to me, but it's definitely visible right from the start. So yeah, that's yeah, those, are, those are people. I can't even. Uh, I can't even make a, a crude joke about Pam's comments because she will forever be the person who introduced me to the Wolfenstein series, which I thought was just a stupid first-person shooter game. And she was like, "No, it's a good story." And I'm like, "All right, fine." And sure enough, it was a goddamn perfect story game. And I'm like, "All right, everything everything Pam says, I take as gospel." So. Oh. Well, we we appreciate everyone who took the time to play along with Prime especially this Pam. month, especially Pam. <laughs> and Pam, congratulations on your on your new subscriber milestone. That's, <laughs> that's something that we can all aspire for. It's awesome. Anyways, yeah, like like I was saying, we appreciate everyone taking the time to play along with us and to interact with us on Twitter and in the forums. And we would encourage you to do that again in the upcoming months. But want to kind of give us a chance to tie a little bow on this and so i want i have just kind of i want to give everyone maybe a couple sentences to wrap up your thoughts on the game uh, i want to start with caleb 
uh, one of the best games I've ever played, but admittedly because I am a lover of narrative, a lover of literature, and that probably colors that quite a bit. But I love it. Are, are we talking about where people can follow us now, or is that... Not yet. Not yet. All right, I love it. Sarah, <laughs> how about... I would you... definitely recommend this. Uh, there's a lot... There's a lot going for it, and um, I think a lot that would appeal to many different people. Okay, I will go with mine, and I'll just say there's a lot, a lot of things that you could do that take two hours that would be that pale in comparison to what you get out of out of this game. Uh, even after repeated playthroughs, it is way up there uh, <laughs> for for just excellence in storytelling and i could not encourage you to play it more highly and i'll say that it's always seems to be on sale so pick it up <laughs> it's a nice if you want a nice relaxing game that like you can knock out and not you know that's that's the thing about it it doesn't overstay it's welcome it's just a nice relaxing game you can just sit back and you know witness a whole bunch of people die <laughs> but yeah I, I do recommend it it's it's a it's a good time and it's, it's not too expensive and it's on Game Pass so if you are an, a Game Pass subscriber, you know you can knock it out. Even if you're not, it's well worth the purchase. I sure. would say. Yeah, I got mine free through Epic Games. <laughs> and with that being said, that's the show, everyone. But I want to thank our wonderful guests for coming on and talking about this game. So, Caleb, where can we find you online? Give us some plugs here. Oh, I love plugs. Uh, so Caleb J. Ross, the letter J, all one word, Caleb J. Ross uh, at Twitter. But I'm most active probably on YouTube. The same username, Caleb J. Ross. Thanks for being here. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me. I love it. I love talking about this goddamn game. Yeah, and I can't <laughs> wait. I can't wait till you get this one on your top 100 games of all time there, Caleb. <laughs> yes, I am doing a top 100 games of all time uh, list. Every video is about five new games. So I don't know, subscribe and then like in like three months you'll hear about this game <laughs> all, all narrated by uh miles right the uh the that's right oh he has the best number transitions of any person in the world i will go to the grave saying that so there you go well thanks for being here mm. and sarah where can we find you online give us some so, plugs so <laughs> i'm uh I have a blog called caught me gaming it's uh caught me gaming and I'm also on Twitter at Sarka underscore Sim, S-A-R-C-A underscore S-I-M. And I'm on there too. So uh, thanks for having me. Well, thanks Had for a being good time. here. Awesome. Had a good here. time. You're terrific guests. Oh, thank and, you very much. And for myself, you can find me on Twitter. It's Rocket Sauce. I have an Instagram and I post things I find interesting or pickups I get. And so you can find me on there as well. And Musty, where can we find you? Yep. So on my social medias, I am most active on Twitter. So you can find me at Musty Hobbit. Uh, I do have a YouTube channel uh, that is Second Breakfast. And I'm going to be picking up Twitch and trying to lean into that a little bit harder in the coming weeks and months. Um, and so you can find me there at Musty Hobbit as well. But again, as a reminder to everyone, uh, or if maybe you stumbled upon the show because of your love of What Remains of Edith Finch, uh, Ryan and I do select a new game for our community to play along with Prime every month. And so for April, we will be playing the Black Sheep of the Zelda franchise, the other gold card on the NES, and that is Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link. And 
if you enjoyed this show, we do have a second show on this very feed that's exclusively focused on a handheld game each month. So if that sounds like that's up your alley, Curtis, uh, who is the host, has selected Thor, God of Thunder on the Nintendo DS as the CC portable game for April. Uh, for both shows, as well as other podcast videos and blogs, hop over to cartridgeclub.org and peruse the forums there or join our Discord server to engage with our growing community. Uh, both CC Prime and CC Portable can be found on iTunes, Podbean, and now Spotify. And we'd love a review of the show to help get the word out if you would be so kind. Uh, finally, to those of you who are interested in supporting the club beyond a review on the podcast app of your choice, I'd like to reiterate that the club itself is entirely funded by pledges made from members of our community. We're extremely grateful to those supporters. If you're interested in becoming one of them, please check out our offerings at patreon.com slash cartridge club. We look forward to hearing from you next month. CC Unite. Thank mm -hmm. you.